Well, it's good good to see you enjoy each other. I hate, almost hate to interrupt, but I think if I let you keep going, we'd, I mean, we'd never get to the sermon. And... <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Um, by the way, I'm just going to mention while you're doing that, uh, you may have noticed uh, things have changed around here a bit in, in various areas. Our you know, beloved big tree gone, and but uh, new new cross on the end of the building, thanks uh, uh, to Deborah and her brother, and thankful for their donation and effort there. Um, but you notice some dirt work done. If you, if you, I don't know if you go, some of you don't ever go in the cinder block building. But you should go there. There's some big changes that have, have happened over there. God's blessed us to be able to be good stewards of the things that he's given us. You might notice, you might not have noticed the windows different in here, but those have been needing changing. And so God's continued to bless us with the ability to be uh, take good good care of these things. And uh, I was, I was going to mention thank you to the people who have been involved. I'll probably miss somebody if I do, but you know, Paul Shaw has been overseeing all those things in that area of the board, and Kip Huckab has put a lot of hours in, kind of then running some of those projects underneath Paul, and and uh, you know James has been involved, and Rosanna, and um, a bunch of other people. So thank you for the the things that you do, uh, helping us to to praise God through uh, those things as well. That's all part of of our worship as well. So thank you. John chapter 4, if you were here last week, uh, you may remember that uh, we, we picked up off John the Baptist's phrase that, uh, where he said, uh, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. Uh, John didn't see himself as more than he was. He was the one who was to come before, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, he was one who was to, to point people to him, to encourage them to repent of their sin and move toward the Savior who had come. And last week, at the end of chapter 3, we saw why Jesus must increase. And those verses there from verses 31 through 36 are just packed with truth about who Jesus is, pointing especially to his deity, that he is in fact God. Um, but also that his words are true and are powerful. And kind of all boiled it down and put in a key statement, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so there... Jesus is shown to be what he is, the central person when it comes to, to life and death, to, eterni- to eternal blessing or eternal punishment. You're in one category or the other. And so, so uh, John, uh, the gospel writer, and John the Baptist have pointed us to this one who is really should put us in awe, should make us say, wow. He really needs to increase more and more in my estimation, in my consideration, in in how I live my life. I I ought to be coming to him and saying, I need to line my life up with what you have done and what you want for me. That brings us to chapter 4, where we now see, well, what was Jesus doing? What was Jesus about? So if he is this one who, who needs to 
to be seen as the greatest, this one who must continue to grow in our estimation and understanding of him. What did Jesus do from that time when he was with his disciples out in the wilderness and baptizing people and making disciples of them? So verses 1 through 6, if you follow along with me, let's start with those. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we have Jesus, having been down in Judea for quite a while, remember he went there for the Passover. Uh, he, you know, he, he cleansed the temple, kicked all the people out who were selling animals and changing money and all that. And now he spent some time uh, he, with people, with, with Nicodemus, talking about his questions, but also out in the wilderness, um, you know, people coming to him, teaching them, baptizing them. And now there's something that causes him to, to change direction. And uh, we can, we'll see a lot in John's gospel, uh, really, especially starting here, that Jesus is very aware that the Father's timing is of utmost importance. And he will time when he goes to feasts. He will time when, when he avoids certain confrontations. There's times when he goes right into a confrontation head on, but other times, like this, where he says, okay, now's not the time for that. I'm going to go somewhere else so that things don't get uh, more heated. And, and then there will come a time when he will say, now my time has come, and he heads toward Jerusalem. Um, but I, if we were to read through the number of times there in John, we'd, we would start to run out of time. So we're not going to look at all of those, but watch for those in the Gospel of John. Because he, he talks about, well, my time has not come. Or, or in this case, when the Pharisees, the religious teachers, hear that he's gaining a bigger following, that he's baptizing more than John is, turns their attention toward him. Well, it's not time for his, his uh, prominence to rise. And so Jesus leaves Judea. And verse 4 tells us that he had to pass through Samaria. They say had to? And if you can put the, the map up there, we'll get a little bit of an idea maybe of what he's talking about. Jesus was down in well, Blazer's dead. So. <laughs> okay, but Jesus is down in the area of Judea around Jerusalem. Okay, and he's going to Galilee. He'll end up by the end of the chapter. You see the arrow up there, just north of Nazareth. His Cana is the next geographical place he will eventually end up. But it says he had to go through Samaria. And you say, well, that, that only makes sense. It's the shortest route, right? Um, but the people of, of Judea especially, if they had to go to Galilee, because of their attitude toward the Samaritans, they didn't want to go through there. In fact, they would go from Jerusalem. They would cut clear over here, go north, 
through this area, and then cut back over so they could totally avoid going through Samaria. And that's because there's a great history, well, not a great history, actually kind of a sad history between uh, the people of Judea, the, the Jewish people, and the Samaritan people. And, and it goes clear back to the 700s B.C., um, when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken off into captivity uh, by the Assyrians. And they took a whole bunch of them and took them off to a, an area to the east. And they brought people from another area of the, the Assyrian empire and settled them in Samaria. And the people that were left behind and the new people who were not Jews intermarried. And the people who came in brought their worship of their idols and their false gods. And so you have this mixed group that, you know, they're not fully Jewish, and their means of worship has been corrupted. When the, then later, uh, the kingdom of Judah is taken off to Babylon and taken into captivity. And for 70 years, they're in Babylon. Then God brings a remnant back. And one of the first things he has them do is to start to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And these people show up who have been living in the land, and they say, well, we want to help you. And if, you, if you've read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you find out that their motives probably weren't all really pure. But the, but the Jewish people who were building the temple said, no, you have no part in this. They hadn't kept themselves separated from the nations like God had commanded them. And so they, they rejected them from helping with the temple. And so about 400 B.C., the Samaritans, those people who were in that, that area, built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they said, well, this is really where God intended the temple to be anyway. Um, and, and, and the Samaritan religion was purified really, in, in the sense that they stopped worshiping false gods, idols. But in a sense, they, the God they worshiped wasn't the God who had all of, all of the... All, sorry. They didn't believe all the revelation that God had given them. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so when, they, when it tells them that they needed to go and worship at the place that God would show them, well, they had a great argument that said, oh, well, God really wanted us to worship at Mount Gerizim. That was the first place that Abraham built an altar when he came into the land. That was the place that when they first came into the promised land, you might remember that on Mount Gerizim, the people, half the people, were on Mount Gerizim, and they recited the blessings that God would give them if they obeyed. And on Mount Ebal, the, the, the other half of the people recited the curses if they disobeyed. And they built, and an altar was built in that area. So they're saying, well, of course, God wants a temple on Mount Gerizim. And then, I believe it was 128 B.C., uh, the Jews destroyed that temple. So you can see there's these tensions that have been going on for, for centuries here uh, between these two groups of people, the people who are part Jewish, who have their own system of worship, 
And, and so the, the Jewish people see them as, you know, as half-breeds. They see them as having a corrupted religion. They, they see them as unclean, not keep having kept themselves separated from the nations like God had said. And so, especially the people of Judea in Jesus' day really didn't, didn't like the people of Samaria. Uh, they had traditions and they had laws and things that, and saying uh, that, that really to interact with a Samaritan was to make yourself ceremonially unclean, especially Samaritan women. And so they avoided going, you didn't eat food that was prepared by a Samaritan. You just kept yourself separate. And so you can see when it says here that Jesus needed to go through Samaria, he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go through Samaria because he could have taken a road that took him around. But Jesus, again, is, is so sensitive to what the Father is leading him to do. If you remember at one point, he, he was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted, right? Well, here the Holy Spirit leads him to Samaria. Another interesting thing to note here is that it says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so it was a a good stopping point on a journey. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know, the humanity of Jesus. As fully man, having been traveling, um, depends on what the sixth hour means. If it means, uh, if it's uh, Jewish time, I believe it is, it's, it's noon. If it's going by Roman time, it's six in the evening. Either way, it's noon. It's the hottest time of the day. He's thirsty. They've apparently been traveling from uh, Judea. If it's the end of the day, there's been a long day of walking. In either case, we see Jesus dealing with the weaknesses we have because he was human. And so he sits down. And while he's waiting, his disciples go into the nearby village of the Samaritans to get some food. And up comes a woman. Verse 7, follow along with me. I'll go ahead and and read down through verse 26 to get the the flow of all this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that? living water. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, 
Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have, you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this woman comes along, right? Jesus is sitting there by himself. Uh, it's remarkable, I think, when Jesus sees her that she comes alone. Uh, the women would typically go together to go get water from the well. But here comes a woman by herself, a Samaritan woman. All that comes with both of those things. Uh, because a lot of the Jewish tradition even uh, discouraged men, and especially rabbis, from interacting with women. Uh, they didn't see them as, as worth the time or uh, appropriate to interact with a woman but a Samaritan woman at that. And now we have a woman who is coming to the well by herself. And you have to stop and say, what reason is she, why isn't she coming when all the other women come together? And Jesus is thirsty, right? He's weary from his, his walk. It's a dry place. And then he does something that we don't think too much about, but it would have been very shocking. He says, give me a drink. He asks her for something that, that she can, can get, but he doesn't have the physical ability in his humanness to get for himself. And I love this approach that Jesus has because he approaches her in a way that gives her a feeling of, you could say, control. Jesus, all the things we saw about Jesus in the previous chapter, he comes with all power, right? And yet he says... Give me a drink. You have something. You have the ability to get something I need. I'm going to make myself vulnerable to you and your abilities. And in a sense, he puts her at ease. And that's, I think that's a good thing for us to think about when we approach people, especially when we want to share the gospel. We come from a position of great power, great strength, because Christ dwells in us. Can we sometimes... Say, I need your help. People I, oftentimes, I think, are put at ease when we say, will you help me? But I know I have the same problem some of you have, asking for help. Jesus, he could have created water right there if he really wanted to, right? 
But he asked this woman that the society and the religious leaders said he shouldn't even be talking to, he asked her for help. And, and John there whispers in, in our ear, he, you know, as, as he goes through his gospel, you know, he's aware that, that Gentiles like us are reading his gospel. And so your, your, your Bible might have this in parentheses, but it says some uh, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I think that's just John interjecting some truth for us so that we can get it better. And, and some of those things were you didn't use the same utensils that a Samaritan had had used. And so here she's got her bucket, her means of dipping the water. Oh, you don't want to use that because a Samaritan has already used that. That will make you unclean. And not only that, she's a Samaritan woman. And so there are other reasons that they gave that I won't explain now, but, but that make, would make you unclean because she is a Samaritan woman. You never make yourself obligated to a Samaritan. Don't put yourself in a place where you owe them something. That was kind of one of their, their, their rules that they had. In fact, that's why she says, you being a Jew, why, why do you being a Jew ask me for a drink? She understood this divide. She understood this idea that she was supposed to be kept off to the side. And this is her basic identity she starts out with of Jesus. She can recognize uh, by his dress, by those kind of things, that He's Jewish. Okay, here's your box. You're in this box of being a Jewish man. I didn't expect you to talk to me. I really didn't expect you to ask me for something you couldn't get for yourself. Matter of fact, when she says that in verse 9, says the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman. She uses a word that means someone who is asking someone else from a place of need. And it's usually it's a word that's often used for prayer of a, of a human being asking God for something. The interesting thing is this particular word for prayer is never used of Jesus praying to the Father because Jesus, being God, speaks to him as one who is equal with the Father. So she recognized he is actually, though he had all the reason in the world to put himself above her by human standards, actually came and put himself under the ability she had to get him water. It caught her attention. It's like, what's wrong with you? You're not like the rest of the people I run into. She sees him putting himself at her mercy. I wonder if she was sarcastic. That's the terrible thing about trying to read. We, we don't hear what she said, right? Did she have a sarcastic tone to her voice? Was she putting him down? You being a Jew, in other words, you think you're so great. You think you're so much better than us. I don't know. But she definitely has some moving to do before she realizes who this man is, who is, who is interacting with her. And Jesus replied to her after she says, Who are you? Why do you ask me? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. She says, Well, you're missing some understanding. Did you know God has a gift for you? If you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
so he, he turns this whole situation around. He, he open, helps her to open up by making himself vulnerable to her. But he wants her to think beyond appearances. You think I'm just the typical Jewish man. But if you really knew that God wanted to give you an amazing gift, and the person that's standing before you, here in the middle of your daily chores, here in the middle of your routine, you would be asking, and here he's, he's basically using that same word, you would be asking from a position of need for what it is I can give you. I have for you a gift from God. Now here we want to talk, he talks about it, you would ask for living water from me. One of the things you need to know about the well there that Jacob had had dug and that was there for their, their benefit was the well, if, if they've actually located the right spot, and, and there's reason to believe they have, is a well that is supplied not just by water that's run down into the ground. It's not a cistern. It's not just collected water, but there's actually a spring there that flows into the well. And so you could call that living water, flowing water. One of the things it's, it's termed as is living water. So in a sense, she's probably thinking, living water? Well, that's what we have in this, this well, but I'm the one with the bucket, right? Well, Jesus is going to take that term, living water, and, and give it a whole new meaning for her. He's going to take her from what she's thinking about and where she's at and say, I have living water for you. I am the one who can give you what you are truly thirsty for. It's obviously not what she can give to him. How would he get such a thing? How can you do this? And we notice in verses 11 and 12, there, there's a little turn, right? There's a little change in her. She said to him, Sir. Uh, it's the word that's translated Lord as well, but if it's used in this context, it probably means sir. It's a, a term of respect. So she's gone from him being a Jew to someone she says sir to. Now, he's, already, he's revealed to her that he has a identity she doesn't know. So that might be part of it. She said, he, he says he has something for me. He says he can give me a living water. Maybe I better speak a little more respectfully to him. Maybe she's afraid of missing out on what it is he could give her. But Jesus has moved her estimation of him up a notch. But she can just see the obstacles, right? Now, where are you going to get living water from? First of all, I'm the one with the bucket. You have no bucket. Secondly, this is a, a deep well. And the well that is there today is over 100 feet deep. Uh, may have been even deeper in that day. So, so for a person to, to draw water out, it was not, a, not an easy thing, and especially somebody just walking along without a bucket, without any means. It's not going to happen. And so she says, you're not greater than Jacob. He gave us this well. He arranged for it to be dug. He left it here for us over the generations. We're indebted to him for that. Where, where are you going to get living water? Where are you going to get me anything that will take care of my thirst? And that's when Jesus turns things again. He begins to move with her from the physical to the spiritual. In verse 13, Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst 
again. And he uses a present tense verb there, so it's everyone who keeps on drinking this water from this well will keep on getting thirsty. You'll keep drawing. You'll drink it. You'll get thirsty again. You're going to have to make that trip down the hill again, right? You're going to have to get more water. You're going to take it. You're going to drink it. You're going to quench your thirst temporarily. You're going to have to come back again. That's your situation, he says to her. But the water that I give, you drink it, and, and then he uses a, a verb tense that's you drink it once. You drink it once, and then you never thirst. In other words, it satisfies what your need is, what you deeply thirst for. And then the interesting thing then in verse 14 is that he says, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And when he says it will become, he uses, he uses a, a, a voice that says it will make itself into. And so it will act on itself. You'll drink that water, that water will act on itself and start springing up within you. It's like, whoa, what do you mean? And springing up to eternal life, that you will live forever. And it's, a, it's probably kind of puzzling. Like, how can I drink water? And that water turn itself into a well that keeps on flowing inside of me so that I never thirst. But one of the great things is, is we can cheat a little bit. Let's jump ahead, because Jesus explains himself more fully in chapter 7. So, so turn to chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. <clears throat> and here he is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple, there was a ceremony that they had, had introduced. It was just tradition. But they would go, and a priest would go down and, and draw some water, from, probably from the Pool of Siloam, but it came from the, from the, Gihon, the spring of Gihon. And he would dip in and, and take that out, and the people would follow him, and he would make that trek back up from the pool or from the spring and go into the temple and go to the altar, and, and they would circle around the altar, and they had the various things that they said, and they did. But then he would take that water, and he would pour it out on the altar. And they would, they would say, praise God. And I think part of that was a picture that God, who provides us with the, the very basic things we need, right? He provides us with water just like he provided for the people out in the wilderness where, where Moses struck the rock and water gushed out more than they needed. Because connected with the Feast of Tabernacles, which reminded them that they once lived in tents out in the wilderness. Well, at the Feast of Tabernacles that year, something unusual happened. According to chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, it says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, that's what he means by come to me. Lord, you put your trust in me. You entrust your eternity to me. You entrust your need for forgiveness of sins to me. As the scripture says, 
from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So he's going to pick up this, this idea of living water again, right? You believe in me, living water is going to spring up within you. Then verse 39, John explains it. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He says, look, put your trust in me, and one day the Holy Spirit is going to live in you and bring you what you need for life. That's what he's telling this woman. Come to me. Make yourself dependent upon me. And that will give you life. And it will be life that springs up and continues and continues and continues. How long? Well, he said, unto eternal life, right? You will just keep on living. Well, that's got our attention. Verse 15, back in, in chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Uh, she asks, she says, okay, I'll ask you for, for this living water because then I don't have to do this terrible chore by myself because the women don't really want me around, right? She doesn't know what she's asking for, and she asks for something pitifully less. She asks for physical water, right? Her eyes are on the things of this life, the struggles of her daily living, to not thirst anymore, to not have to have this terrible chore anymore. Maybe she can avoid the hard work, the lonely humiliation of all these trips to the well. She'd like that kind of relief. And so often, isn't that what we want? Uh, we just want temporary relief from the, the circumstances we're in. Jesus was offering her so much more. And so he's got to get her thinking more on a, on a more spiritual level. So in verse 16, he says, said to her, go call your husband and come here. Because Jesus knew her circumstances. Uh, it's kind of like with Nathaniel. Remember he said, I saw you under the fig tree? Here he understands her background. I believe uh, in his humanity he received that information by the Holy Spirit. But where her issues in life were, he lays them out for her. And why she didn't get Jesus, what Jesus meant is because she was still wrapped up in the circumstances of life. And so he starts it with a valid cultural question if he's going to give a woman a gift. Well, before I give you this gift, you should call your husband because he should be here for this, right? Catches her up cold, right? I have no husband. Of course, there's so much more to that. But she states correctly. But she avoids the real issue. She leaves her past out. She just gives her current circumstance, right? I'm not married. I think she's maybe raising her guard to back up a little bit. She started to open up, but it's like, oh, I don't think I want to go there with you. I don't even, I don't even know you. Then Jesus says, you've stated correctly that you have no husband because you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. He just dumps her life out there on the ground by the hell, right? Five husbands. One live-in case of sexual immorality. He lays her greatest shame, her greatest pain out there in the open. His, his, his doing that 
opens her up on the one hand because he's willing to talk about it, and I think it probably terrified her on the other. You think of all that she must have gone through to have been married five times. There was some sin on her part, no doubt. There was a pursuing by her of things that she shouldn't have pursued. But I can't help but think she was probably abused through those relationships as well. She was someone who had been taken advantage of, someone who had been hurt deeply by these men who had taken her up and cast her aside. She's starting to understand he's not just talking about water. He cares about her and her pains and her struggles and all the hard things that have happened to her. And then in verse 19, she opens back up a little bit. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So now it's not just a, that word for perceive. It's, it's more, I'm, I'm, I'm looking a little more closely at you. And as I look at what you've just said and the things that you're, you're doing here, I, I, you're a prophet. You have a connection with God. But if you're a prophet, and you're standing in front of a prophet, here's someone who really knows what's going on because God told him. Well, what, do you, what, do you, what would you ask a prophet? Well, she dives into the whole Samaritan Jewish controversy, right? Oh, we say we should worship here. You Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? And certainly it would have been something on her mind but maybe it's also a way to say, let's get away from my pain. Let's get away from my sin. I'd, I, let's talk about this theological issue. And there was a great theological debate. And, and they went to the, the first five books of Moses and made their argument about why Mount Gerizim was the place that they should do it. And Jesus totally just wipes the argument off, off the slate, right? Clears it away. Um, it goes in verse, verse 22. He says, I'm sorry, verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He says, the place is going to become insignificant. And when we get to the end of Jesus' life, you can see it in Matthew 27, 51, but the, uh, the, the veil of the temple, remember when Jesus dies? Split from the top to the bottom. It ruined the Holy of Holies. Okay? All of a sudden, not just the high priest could go in, but in, but there was a way in, and God had opened it up, not men. And then in, in AD 70, the Romans would come, and they would just totally destroy the temple. It, there would be no temple in Jerusalem either to go to to worship. But Jesus does say that the Jews do know what they worship. He does say salvation is from the Jews because in those books that the Samaritans rejected, it's laid out very clearly. Well, even in, the, in, in those first five books, because they're told that from the seed of Abraham... All the nations would be blessed. Speaking of the seed, the one, the Messiah who was to come. But Jesus wants her to know, and I think part of this is that she's going to need all of God's revealed word in the, in the time ahead. Her and the others who will, who will believe with her. 
But he wants her to open up and say, hey, there's all of this other revelation that speaks about Jerusalem, that speaks about David and the descendant of David, that speaks about what it means to, to follow after God. You're going to need that. That was given to the Jewish people, and the Jewish Messiah is going to come through the Jewish people. But here's the key, is that those that worship is now going to be a worshiping in spirit and in truth. And I'm, I'm not going to read Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 29, uh, but you can look those up for yourself just for the sake of time this morning. But that's God speaking to the people who had the temple. And he said, I hate your, I hate your sacrifices. I hate all of your festivals. I hate all the things you do. Why? Because your heart is far from me. You're just going through the motions. You're just doing religious stuff. You aren't worshiping me, as Jesus will say here, in spirit and in truth. You're making the things I've told you to do to worship me. It's a mess. It's ugly. It doesn't fit why I gave them to you. And so the Jews, even though they had the revelation, even though they had the temple that God had told them to come to and to worship in, there were many of them that didn't worship in spirit and in truth. The fact that the Samaritans were wrong about the scriptures and the place of worship doesn't mean that they'll be left out of salvation, though. Here, Jesus, just been told, is the one who should increase, right? Where does he go? Well, he goes to the despised Samaritans and says, you, have the ability, you will have the ability to worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, you got some things wrong. But where is your heart before God? Are you coming to him with a need and asking him to give you what you need for life. It's their hearts aligned with his truth in worship that will and always has mattered. And he wants this woman to know that. If she and her people are going to worship in this way, notice he said, such people God is seeking to be his worshipers. Avoided, shunned by the Jewish people who thought they knew God. But Jesus goes and says, get your heart right before God by taking the living water he wants to give you, by having his life spring up within you. That's who God is seeking. God is seeking you, Samaritan. You, despised, shunned woman. God is looking for you. As he goes on, he says, for God is spirit. He's not an idol or an image that you have to go to a particular place where it, it resides in a temple. He doesn't just have power in one certain area like so many of the gods that were worshipped around them had. He wasn't just a god of the valleys or the mountains or of the crops or of fertility or like all those. No, God is spirit. He is everywhere. Jesus says, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he's not limited to a place. In other words, you should be worshiping him everywhere, in everything that you do, in every act that you undertake. should be an act of worship because he is there in it. Everything is headed in his direction. Jesus is having an impact on this woman. 
And the woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she's gone from sir to prophet to, I know Messiah is coming. Now, that wasn't a word that the Samaritans used. They had another term that, that they used, taheb. And it meant the revealer. Uh, because so much of the teaching about Messiah comes out of the, the books that they didn't accept. But interestingly, she uses the term Messiah. I know Messiah is coming. And he will reveal. that Their word meant reveal. He will become the great revealer. I know he's coming. And she expresses it in the terms she knew and understood. Her hopes are rising, and she's willing to see that their, their expectation and that the Jewish Messiah, maybe it's the same one. But Jesus pulls her in. Okay? Verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. And, and really, literally, what he, what he says to her is, the one who's speaking, I am. And the first of several I am statements that Jesus makes, the first one is spoken to a Samaritan woman. And that he reveals himself to be the one that was revealed to Moses. Well, who should I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Jesus here tells this woman, I am. Come to me. I have the water of life that you need. And that's verse 26, right? What happens? What happens to this woman? Well, let's jump ahead just a little bit. Jump down to verse 42. She goes back to her village. She says, this man told me everything I've ever done. That probably got some quick attention because she'd done some things that implicated some of them, I think. But basically, they come to talk to Jesus. And in verse 42, it says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. In other words, she believed him. Yeah, in fact, he is the Messiah. He is I am. And she went back and told the village, and, and Jesus was invited. And they all came and said, Hey, you've got to come talk to us. And here in Samaria, one of the most blatant uh, confessions of who Jesus is, he is the Savior of the world, comes from these people who the religious people didn't want anything to do with, didn't give any hope for. And yet Jesus went there and he said, believe in me, I'll give you life that truly matters. And it didn't stop there. You can look up those passages on the, that are on your outline, but Acts 1.8, remember where they were to take the gospel? To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. Samaria was on his list of places the gospel should go to and soon. And then turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Because after Jesus ascends to heaven, and the gospel begins to spread. In verse 4, Philip 
takes a little trip. And there's, there's persecution under Saul, right? And people have to, have believed in Jesus, have to, have to go spread out. And it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them or Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. I think maybe these are some of the people Jesus had already brought to believe that he was, in fact, the Savior of the world. And then he sends his sent ones, his apostles, to them after he has done the act of dying and raising in victory and ascending to heaven. So that then what can happen? Those who believe will have the Spirit in them, right? Flowing, springing up in them. Look at what Jesus did. What should you be doing? Are you a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth? Are you pointing people to the one who can actually forgive their sins and give them life that springs up within them eternally? I hope so. We all obviously can do better at that, right? But on the other hand, we also have what an incredible privilege to share the living water, Jesus, and new life with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You have done so much to, to help us grasp and understand these truths, and yet there's so much more to know. But, but on what we know, we can act. And so I pray that you'd open up those opportunities for each one here who already knows Jesus and has, has your spirit with life springing up eternally. Lord, any that are here today that haven't believed in Jesus, haven't brought themselves to ask him to, to forgive their sins and to give them new life and to put his spirit within them so that he can continue to bring new life to them. I pray that they would do that right now. They would, they would talk to you. They would, in their heart, uh, submit to Jesus, the Messiah, the giver of new life. Lord, help us to also live in the joy and in the, the strength of being in Christ so that we can go without fear and we can go with boldness uh, to a world around us that is very thirsty for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray.